0: Mission Log Supplemental, number 13, the one with almost everyone. Hello, this is the Mission Log Computer, but you can call me, the Mission Log Computer. We have a big show ahead of us, first up. Mike and Denise Okuda, then conversations with a couple of Mission Log listeners, but you can call them Allison and Alan. Then, John talks with Vic Mignogna of Star Trek continues. Then, conversations with Alice and John, but you can call them a couple of Mission Log listeners. Finally, the guys wrap the TOS wrap-up with Phil Plate, also known as the Bad Astronomer.
1: All right, Ken, we're joined by Mike and Denise Okuda. And I know that for many of our listeners, they need no introduction. But I'm going to ask Mike, because it needs to sort of introduce themselves by way of of their their titles, their jobs. Because you've done so much when it comes to Star Trek in the last, what, 25 years? I, you both started working on Next Gen, right?
2: Oh, about that, yeah.
1: Okay. So how, how would you describe your your tasks, your jobs in the world of Star Trek.
3: Uh, I started on Star Trek as the uh, graphic designer for Star Trek IV and Star Trek The Next Generation and that kind of morphed into uh, along with Rick Sternbach I became a technical consultant and then um, uh, uh, Denise and I were invited to write a number of Star Trek books uh, the Star Trek Encyclopedia uh, encyclopedia. Uh, Gene actually uh, suggested that we write the uh,
2: Star Trek chronology. That actually was a fun book to do, yeah, because nobody could keep you know things straight. So Gene asked Mike, and anyway, that was a fun project. Cool. And um, I feel like I've been with Star Trek my whole life. Uh, <laughs> I came on uh, kind of unofficially on on Star Trek Five, and uh, and TNG, and. Um, Met Herman Zimmerman, our production designer on Star Trek VI, and uh, then came on board and worked on Star Trek Deep Space Nine in the art department, in the graphics department. Um,
3: But also as our video coordinator.
2: Yes. um, On Deep Space Nine, video was an integral part of the look of the sets, and there wasn't anyone who uh, was assigned to, um, to handle that, to coordinate that, and... Uh, Michael had been given the duty to oversee that with the graphics and so forth and asked if I would be the video coordinator, which I said, of course, and it turned into a a very busy job. Um, And then we went on and worked um, the other incarnations, Voyager and Enterprise, as well as a feature film every other year.
1: So most people know you from modern era Trek, Next Gen and beyond, but for our purposes on this show... (laughs) <laughs> your favorite series is
0: the, the original, original series. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yes. All right.
1: So we're doing our TOS wrap up and we, uh, Ken and I have just reviewed, analyzed, picked apart every one of the 79 episodes plus, plus the cage um, in great detail and trying to, to pick apart the morals, meanings, messages um So I have to ask, for a couple of people who have worked on modern-era Trek, everything from next-gen forward, why the original series? Why is that the one that you go back to when when you fan out about Star Trek? Why is it that one?
3: Uh, Well, first of all, I have a suspicion that everyone's favorite Star Trek will tend to be the thing that they saw when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's the original series. But more than that, I think the original series... Is I don't know if by definition it has to be, but it's the, the purest expression of what we think of as, as, the, as the wonder of Star Trek, the adventure of, uh, of going boldly and of, of discovering and, of, uh, and of, of learning about ourselves and our place in the universe.
2: And the original series for me took everything that I passionately love and put it into one location, one universe. I love the mystery of the universe. But I also like characterization and story and wonder. And the original series for me and thankfully for my husband um, really spoke to us and I think shaped us in our lives in toward adulthood. Um, so it's very special to us.
4: Would I be right in thinking, too, that there's got to be something about it that – I mean, there's still an air of mystery about the original Star Trek for you guys, right? I mean, you don't look – at well, just name a random episode of star trek and say oh yeah i was on that set that's got to be the one that you can approach just as fresh as everybody else in a way
3: that's an actually a very interesting observation i very clearly remembered uh remember uh when i was first working on star Trek IV, which is the first uh star trek production i worked on
5: mm-hmm.
3: I was still living in hawaii at the time and they fedexed me the uh, uh, the script and, and of course i was very excited so uh, I picked up the envelope and I went in my car and I tore it open and I re- very much remember thinking I can never watch Star Trek again. I can never wonder, "Oh my god, what's going to happen?"
4: Hmm. And
3: uh, it's certainly it's it's a it's a trade-off worth worth making because uh to be involved in this wonderful universe. But you're right. Uh start the original Star Trek is the first is the still the the one where you go to and say uh when we can watch it as fans.
2: Yeah, we sometimes, even though we were so fortunate to work on the incarnations after uh, the original series, we kind of felt cheated because we couldn't just watch Star Trek. Um, That was taken away from us. I mean, a wonderful experience was put in its place, but it's almost like that's work. And watching the original series, you're right, we were very small uh, as children, and that was a totally different thing and it still is even though obviously many years have passed
3: but of course uh, our love of the original series made it that much more fun on um next generation Deep space 9 uh and um enterprise on those those crossover episodes so we in a way we did get to uh, uh, to walk down the corridors of the original enterprise and to, and to, and to sit in the captain's chair because we uh we got to help, We got to work on those uh, on those uh, recreations,
2: and also um, it was a lot of fun because we got to work with the uh, the actors from the original series and some of the uh, feature films, mm. and we got to um, we got to meet Bob Justman, producer Bob Justman, um, who you know through reading and and learning about television production, and of course we got to meet Gene, and um, that of course was one of the most treasured and special events for us.
1: Um, I I want to get an idea of, uh, since you worked on so much of Trek after 1986, um, how did that sort of influence or change your perspective when you then got to go back and dive very deeply into TOS with the remastered series. Because then you had to go back and watch everything frame by frame and really pick apart what was happening right, in the I series. talking about the original series? Yeah, yeah. So you, you had to go back and and see everything on a very deep detailed level. Did that alter then your perspective of just being a fan?
3: <laughs> a lot of people uh, look at the original series and they go, wow, how cheap that is, how... Um uh, look they recycled that or, or, they, or they, they didn't show this uh, having worked in television production uh, we go back and look at the original Star Trek and go my god how brilliantly ingenious they were they couldn't afford to In um, what is it? Um, uh, Devil in the Dark mm. remember the scene where, uh, uh, where Kirk is in the Vault of Tomorrow and there's all those rows and rows and rows of, uh, of Horta eggs Right.
5: Mm-hmm. In
3: fact, remember, uh, you actually never saw the Horta eggs. All you saw was Captain Kirk looking at Wonder at, at, at that off-screen wall <laughs> and speaking of and describing it. The Vault it, of Tomorrow. The Vault of right. Tomorrow. Yeah. And it was so powerful that you think you, you, think you saw it in your mind. And that's yeah. just brilliant filmmaking. Hmm.
2: I mean... It, when we went back after we had worked in television and worked on uh, on Star Trek current day, um, you go back and you watch the original series. And like I said, Michael said it was brilliant. But you bring that knowledge of television production to our viewing. So now we watch it kind of with split intelligence. We enjoy Star Trek for what it is and the fact that it's been with us so many years. But then also we analyze it um, production-wise. And uh, it... It, for me, at least, it adds to the beauty and it adds to the to the fun of the original series.
1: One of the things that Ken and I have been trying to do uh, for the last 80 episodes <laughs> is to figure out what is that formula? What, what is the thing that makes the original series hold up uh, or does it? Hold up. I mean, we're, we're talking as fans who, as Mike, as you pointed out, you know, people tend to be a fan of the thing that they saw in their childhood. Um, but here we are continually picking apart that question of why 50 years later does Star Trek still have an appeal? Why do new fans keep coming to the show? What is it? What, what are the pieces there that make that original series so special?
3: At the core of it is Star Trek was simply wonderful characters, wonderful stories, wonderful storytelling in a wonderful universe. Uh, that being said, each show, each movie, whatever, its success or failure depends on where culture is at that, at that moment, where, the, where that individual viewer is. What works for you may not work for me. I remember um, many years ago, before uh, Lucas made the Star Wars prequels, Speaking with a friend at Lucasfilm, saying, "Oh God, I really hope they make another Star Wars movie." And he pointed, and my friend pointed out that there were that it was not a slam dunk. That each uh, that when you make a movie, you're trying to guess where will popular culture be two years from now? What will people react to? Will they be tired of this? Will they want to see this? Will this be overplayed? Will this still be in the news? And so it's it's a it's a gamble and. And Star Trek has remained because of the essential correctness. What I think is the essential correctness of the storytelling. Even though a lot of the things have been bypassed, the, uh, the uh, production technology has been has been uh, far surpassed. But the essential power of the storytelling is such that the show is still hold up.
2: And I think a lot of it is chemistry. I mean, the the casting is such a huge part. And sometimes overlooked. You just, you know, the actors show up and they do their thing and sometimes there's chemistry and sometimes there's not. There's such chemistry um, between um, Shantner, D. Kelly, and Leonard Nimoy um, that it's almost magical, I think. Um, Once in a blue moon you hit a television series that has that kind of chemistry. Also, I think it's very primal, um, the Star Trek universe, uh seeks to touch us all in that um, imaginative way of seeking the unknown. And um, I, I don't know, I just think the original series did it the best. So
1: if there's something about um, you know, the, the chemistry, the, the, the actors, our response to sort of the, the visual impact, all of that, the, there's so much that is said about Star Trek in its um, its moral stories. And what do you think of that? Holds up? What What do you think of that? Is still relevant today? Or have we given that too much credit? Maybe.
3: I don't think it's too much credit because from the very beginning, uh, Roddenberry very deliberately wove. The fact that the show has, has an ethical a moral point of view into the show by, by by design he was smart enough to understand that his job was that of storytelling and if you not if you don't tell the story then uh, uh then it fails and so not then nothing matters but uh, i think i think this i think the show does does still help again going back to the uh uh deliberate choice of things that uh that are Primal, universal. Uh, you know, none of us will, are likely to ever, ever become gods, but we all face uh, the situation, what do you do when you have power, or what do you do when you're dealing with someone with power? And that's, that's something that's it's quite primal. And even though uh, the episode, the, the trappings of the episode uh, may be relatively, may no longer hold up in terms of production, the ethical dilemma still holds up
2: and I think also at least for me and it was when I first watched Star Trek and it is for me today is that what Jean put forth is that we're all the same in fact we're all um, we're all alike and but yet our differences are some is something to be celebrated and that was something that my parents taught me luckily and then here comes Star Trek. And so, out in the world today, that's the view I take. I, I think that we're family. We're all family. We're all, um, you know, together, and we have our differences. But those differences should be celebrated. And that's to me such a primal, universal um, uh, feeling. And I thank God there was a there was a there was a Star Trek, and that Gene brought that um, to the world of the 1960s i mean he had a russian navigator i know it's been talked about forever and ever and ever but it's true i mean he took back then the russians and we were the space program and we were we were in this race to get to the moon and he put a russian on the bridge of the enterprise that's astonishing
3: it's uh we 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 just think of Chekhov as being on on the bridges of course it's on the bridge but back in the day uh we really did think of the Russians as our mortal enemies, they're gonna blow us up. Uh st- people who uh remember the early days of Star Trek the Next Generation might might remember how fandom just blew up, like oh my god, there's a Klingon on the bridge. You can't do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and putting Chekhov on the original bridge was uh was it that that same kind of a master stroke. Or did Nichelle
2: it- or you know, or, or George. I mean it's just it's Gene was just way, way ahead of his time.
4: I was going to say, I mean, that's something that we sort of – we do sort of forget about that, right? I mean, you're only, what, five or six years out of the Cuban Missile Crisis at that point. You're only 20 years, which feels like a long time in one respect, but in other ways not. You're only 20 years out of – well, 25 years, I guess, out of World War II, um, which does make – which does make Zulu on the bridge uh, an interesting choice. There's a ton of, of of racial conflict going on at the time um, in the U.S. and yet you've got Nichelle, uh, you know, on the bridge as well. I mean, they're, they're, to have that vision and to just say, "Yeah, this is stuff that we're going to get past," and not even to—I mean, there are some episodes that say it. I mean, you have things like "Let That Be Your Last Battlefield" or things that you know make a point of saying we are going to get past this or we have to get past this. But basically, the way he said we're going to get past this is Captain's Log. We're approaching this planet. And look at all these people on my bridge. You know, I mean, it's not even a thing. It's just.
2: Well, see, that's. Yeah, it's not a thing.
4: Right. <laughs> which is which is a brilliant. I mean, a brilliant thing. And, and um, it, I mean, there <laughs> there are shows today that might not try some of the stuff that they did, which is weird because we're so much further along theoretically. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's it's a fascinating thing about that show.
1: I, Ken, since you mentioned uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, and, and there's a million other that are kind of popping into my head right now uh, along those lines, before we wrap up this segment, I want to ask Mike and Denise, out of the original series, what are the standout either episodes or moments or, or characters that really resonate with you that if you were to tell somebody who wasn't familiar to say, this is Star Trek, this is why this show is important?
2: Wow. Um there are, are so many. My favorite episode is um, an episode called Metamorphosis. And when I say that, people look at me like, really? Because it's not everybody's favorite episode.
1: Can I just look at her like, really? Because yeah. that's not anybody's favorite.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it for me, it took, took everything that Star Trek stood for. You've got your main characters isolated in a shuttlecraft, and you've got chemistry. You've got this very disagreeable woman who is dying... She gets stranded and you have this uh, the creator of warp drives, Zephram Cochran, um, there's the mystery, he's on this planet, and then you have this entity who is completely different from him, but she loves him and she essentially sacrifices herself at the end, uh, her, her, her immortality, so that he would have uh, a companion and that Nancy had wouldn't die. And for me, that's the embodiment of Star Trek. Nice.
3: Mike? <laughs> ah, for an episode, that's kind of a tough thing. Let me just pick one scene. Uh, the, the briefing room scene in, uh, uh, in Return to Tomorrow. Kirk's speech. Risk is our business. That's why we're aboard her. Yep.
2: Nice. There are so many. Balance of terror and the quarters and mccoy comes in and and kirk says you know everybody and looks at me to make a decision why me why was i put in this position um there's so many really really great scenes muck times great babel's great (laughs) there's a lot of really really great episodes all
4: right we have to do it the other way then Okay and, 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 Here we and go. I guess well there, I mean, here's the thing there were weeks where in doing the original series of Mission Log where we would you know do our couple of viewings and the very first thing when we would get on to record is um well usually for me I don't wanna mm. <laughs> when you're going back and you're doing you know the work that you did on the original series I mean was there was there an episode that you hit that you're like ah this one's fine because nobody's going to watch it anyway or it's not my favorite or you know is is there one that you're just like ah that that's still painful to watch.
2: Well, there's some. There's one I won't watch. Really? Richards. Yeah. Oh, you're going to I, tell us? I, oh, I but yeah. believe I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, I cannot stand Plato's stepchildren.
5: Interesting. Wow. I think
2: it is sadistic.
4: Wow. Well, it is. Uh, I love. Yeah.
2: It, <laughs>
4: <laughs> Sorry.
5: Go ahead.
2: I just don't. It's. I don't like it at all. Hmm. I I have watched it because I had to watch it. Right. Right. I had to watch it. Um, I had to watch it when I we were doing research for our books. I had to watch it. I had to watch it when we were doing Tosr. Um, but I still hate is really a bad a really strong no, hey, word. Feel um, free to
1: use it. Here. My, my
2: <laughs> I remember growing up. My mom said, "Don't say hate because when you say hate, you you wish that person to die." So oh. I don't say hate very well. But I hate that episode. If it was erased, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's gone. Um,
3: Fascinating. And uh, Mike? Well, to uh, go back to the original question, uh, we kind of approached it, you know, yes, of course, there are episodes that we like more and and episodes that we like less, but we were kind of looking at it from the point of view of we're, we're trying to do service to the entire series. So even, and especially the episodes we didn't like, we would, we would, we would uh, Spock's brain. We would, we would try to make it, make it shine. <laughs> and uh, Denise points out that for the episode Spock's brain, which is not on my top ten, but uh, we worked incredibly hard to try to, to try to bring that one out. Uh, Neil Ray, the uh, uh, VFX supervisor at CBS Digital, uh, actually built uh, a new uh, uh, ion-powered ship for that. Uh, we prevailed on. Um, on Max Gable, or on the matte painter, to do a wonderful painting to uh, enhance the the scope and the desolateness of the uh, Ice Age planet they were on. So, yeah, that was that. Was, that episode was, uh, was a great deal of work that really didn't need to be done, but we felt that all the episodes des- deserved the best we could give them. Cool. All right, uh, everybody, I hate to cut it
1: short, but... Have no fear. This is only the first part of the Mike and Denise Okuda interview. They will be back for a future supplemental. Ken, I had this idea in a uh, fever dream, which is influenced by old episodes of uh, Canid Camera and Alan Fund, and uh, it, it went something like this where I thought, we thought it would be fun to get in touch with some fans, I use that term loosely, I mean listeners of Mission Log, we thought it would be fun to uh, put them on the spot and have them put us on the spot and chat about Star Trek and chat about Mission Log and and that's what this segment of our TOS wrap-up is all about. and um, And... and It is unscripted. It is unplanned. We just wanted to see what would happen. So to kick things off, we have a listener named Allison. Allison, say hello. Hello. There we are. And Allison has been kind enough to send us some really interesting responses to uh, our episodes of Mission Log. Um, And I think for the most part, positive. (laughs)
6: definitely definitely.
1: Um, if we've learned anything we have learned that Star Trek fans love to talk about Star Trek and uh, and we take the good and bad of that the positive and negative of that but um, it's really nice to see when we get emails from people who really get mission log and get the idea of what we're trying to do so first of all thank you for that and um, second of all I want to get a sense from you I assume that you've been watching the shows along with us. You've been watching Star Trek along with our analysis, right? So
6: actually, almost. I uh, watched the original series about a year, maybe two years ago. Okay. So many of them I remember quite well. Uh, but a few of them here and there I've rewatched, like sometimes when I go home, visit my parents, like we watch the latest ones together because they also listen to Mission Log. Um, so right. it, it's kind of like here and there.
1: Okay. All right. So you, you watch the show and then, I mean, is this something that you did before? Like when you watched Star Trek originally, Were you thinking about it in terms of morals, messages, meanings? You know, did our show kind of change your perspective a little bit? Or I want to know kind of how you came to Star Trek and what you were getting out of it.
6: Okay. So it's kind of a two-part thing. So I grew up with Star Trek in the background um, because my parents were fans. Um, And so I have a lot of, like, early memories of, like, you know, like walking into the family room and seeing Captain Kirk on TV and... Oh, not oh really- on,
1: on TV, not not in the family room. Okay. All right. <laughs>
6: yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I just wanted to make sure.
6: Okay. Image. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that well-connected. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I didn't really watch it all of that um, intensively when I was a kid. Really, it was maybe like a year or two years before I started listening to Mission Log that I got really into Star Trek um, because it turned out that, like, you know, at that particular time in my life, I was I was switching my worldview um, from my previous worldview to one that was more, like, secular humanist um, in, like, character.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: And so, you know, that was kind of an existentially challenging time. And I felt like a lot of, you know, the things that I'd watched as a kid, like, full disclosure i was really more a star wars person historically but at that time i felt like a lot of the uh messages and things that i like considered to be sci-fi like star wars really weren't resonating with me anymore so i i sort of made a conceptual split then between um you know star trek and uh like things that are real hard sci-fi and actually based in science versus um, things like star Wars that are like fantasy uh, motifs, like hero's journey Joseph Campbell style uh, type stories that are really felt more like a religious paradigm. So when I started splitting those two apart is when I like super got into Star Trek uh, conceptually, like, this is so great <laughs> um, so so that was a little bit before I discovered your podcast, and the way I discovered your podcast actually um was that, you know, I sort of had my usual lineup of podcasts that I listened to, but I was in a situation where I had just a lot of free time to kill, uh, because my husband got admitted to the hospital. Um, and I was like, it was really late at night. And I was like, looking for stuff to listen to, because I couldn't sleep. And I found your podcast, and I listened to the first episode. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, this is so good. This is perfect. Um, and so I listened to all the episodes. And then I, I think I caught up with you, maybe like uh, like the summer ish, I think. And that's when I started writing to you. But to answer your question um, as to like how your podcast has sort of interfaced with my feelings about Star Trek, I feel like, you know, I had already kind of gotten into the show in a very um, like meat and bones like conceptual messages, philosophy type way. But it just meshed so perfectly with your podcast. And I feel like you guys have really, you know, brought out a like a lot of themes and a lot of ways of thinking about Star Trek that I probably wouldn't have really gone into on my own, not because I wasn't interested, but just because I wasn't like thinking in detail about one episode each week.
4: I'm curious. You say that you had this sort of um well, change. I don't wanna I don't wanna put words to it, but basically that you had this change in your life or in your thinking so then do you actively go out and seek something that's going to feed that and star trek is that thing or were you a fan of the original series or next gen and sort of like oh yeah that kind of clicks i mean how does that
7: yeah it sounds like there was a
4: very decisive moment and how does that become like a star trek thing for you or vice versa
6: yeah so so i was a fan of star trek like i was a casual fan um Mm -hmm. before this time but it was sort of like after this time and through this time, I just because I was thinking so much um, about, like, you know, it's a more like secular worldview, I started to, um, like, really resonate with um, certain things like within my theater of past experience. Um, so I knew about Star Trek, I, you know, it was sort of like on my radar every so often, like I'd see an episode and uh, it was at, at one point I was like this show, I feel like really, you know, I feel like less alone <laughs> when I watch it. And so I was like, I should watch the whole thing. Um, so that's why I started with the original series about a year ago. I actually have not watched next gen. Um, I'm halfway through now. I started after I uh, started listening to your podcast, actually, because then I was like, oh, this podcast is so good. I'm going to commit to um, watching all of Star Trek. So I haven't seen the second half of Next Gen and I haven't seen Voyager at all. Mm. Um, But I watched Deep Space Nine in high school. So I kind of like knew, you know, what the Star Trek vibe was.
1: Interesting. So uh, all I can say is that uh, we reach. Sister, we reach. Um, <laughs> I, I think um, you know there was something about Star Trek that uh, I'm a little bit different. That I grew up with it as as a kid, and I was definitely a fan as a kid, and, and and I had the toys and and all that stuff. But then I just sort of didn't pay attention to it for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and as I got older and as I started to sort of think about my own personal sort of philosophy and approach to life and things like that. And I realized that, it, you know, you kind of said the magic words, a, a secular humanist point of view. Then mm-hmm. I realized that when I went back and watched Star Trek, that this was something new that I got to rediscover about the show, because I hadn't thought about it that hard up until mm-hmm. this point, then when uh, when Ken and I kind of got asked to to do this. So, I I got to look at the whole thing through fresh eyes, too. So I I, I definitely can um, uh, understand where you're coming from with that. Uh, Were there any surprises to you in rewatching the shows or or watching the shows freshly this time? Um, Things that you thought were surprisingly good or surprisingly bad, (laughs) you know, Mm. that maybe changed your view of Star Trek?
6: Yeah, kind of like um favorite original series uh type
1: mm. themes.
6: Mm-hmm. Um so I think one of the things that I noticed uh when I was rewatching and that I really ended up liking a lot was this idea in Star Trek um I don't know if you guys are familiar with like this idea of like in-group versus out-group dynamics and um this like social theory about tolerance like how we um, tend to um, accept and like protect the people in our in group and like fight with people outside our immediate tribe. And like, say was- a bunch of
1: space hippies, you know, yes. you, you might treat them as an <laughs> out group. You know, yeah,
6: yeah. But Star Trek is very, it's very much about like expanding that in group. And I feel like the original series has some really notable um, examples of this, like, like when they. Uh, communicate with the Horda, for example, that just looks like a rock. Or like when, um, I think it was just it was just recently, uh, Requiem for Methuselah, where Kirk is like vehemently defending like a lady robot. Like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, and then the other thing I should definitely mention is that is that your podcast pointed out that I had not really thought about was that like very pithy, like, Ethos, pathos, logos thing that um Kirk, McCoy, and Spock have going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never really framed it that way to myself. Um, I had sort of been thinking of it in a much less pithy way. Um, and I think in a more limited way. Um, like I I was sort of like thinking about McCoy as like, you know, when he's being written in character, like a very um Moral absolutist, like sort of a deontological um, ethical view, where Spock is like very utilitarian um, and tends to argue like greatest good for greatest number. And then Kirk has to like resolve just these disputes. But I feel like the ethos, pathos, logos thing, just like it takes that uh, like observation and it just expands upon it in a way that like brings emotion into it a little bit more, or, like lack of emotion. It's, it's very complicated and cool. And I feel like I would not have thought of that, about that uh, without hearing about it on Mission Log.
1: It, it's so good that I wish that we could take credit for it. Yeah, that'd
6: (laughs) That'd be awesome.
1: (laughs) I know. There are a few things I feel like we definitely get right on the show, um, and that one was definitely contributed by a listener and uh, helped us through many, many episodes. (laughs) Yes.
6: (laughs) Well, it is a good that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, anything else, any questions for us or uh, uh, anything you have to just sort of, you know, a- express to uh, fellow Mission Log listeners or uh, um, or to us in the upcoming uh, years ahead?
6: Okay, well, good luck with the upcoming years for sure. Um, and I did want to say uh, to you guys one thing, and that is that I wanted to compliment you and say that I really like the way that you um, call out sexism when it appears. I know, like, you've mentioned that you've gotten, you know, a little bit of, like, flack from people about not wanting to hear it every week, but... I really like it. <laughs> and I think it's it's right, and I feel like it's appropriate. But I feel like it does more than that even, because when you call it out every time, I feel like that creates a really important effect. Like you're defining a set of things that Star Trek should encompass and a set of things it doesn't encompass. So like you're creating this sort of platform And every time you see this, like, inappropriate behavior, you're like, that's not Star Trek. That's a dated thing. You know, it just makes me feel very included, you know, and, like, very validated. And, like, a little bit less sad about Spock um, (laughs) talking about, like, the female mind in a Mm. not-so-complimentary way. So I just want to say thank you uh, for doing that because I really appreciate it.
1: Ken, I, I can't actually see you, but you, you're doing your happy dance right now, are no, you? No, not no, not at all. I'm, I, I'll tell you honestly,
4: the thing that I am
5: –
1: what I'm
4: really hoping is the case is uh, past uh, the original series that you might maybe get to hear sexism once every couple of seasons. That, yeah, that's I think my that hope. That now, is. it's been a long time since I've actually watched it, and I've never watched it as critically as as we're going to. Um, but, yeah, fingers crossed that, I mean, that, that, you know, a couple of years from now – everyone will be like oh remember when they used to talk about that all the time
0: (laughs) and and not just (laughs) because
4: we got tired of talking about it because you know we don't talk about it anymore because you know maybe
1: hopefully 1987
4: was such a liberated time
1: (laughs) (laughs) and there was no more sexism again the end
6: (laughs) oh i look forward to that
1: All right, I'm joined now by Alan, who is a Mission Log listener. And Alan, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Glad that you could join us for our TOS wrap-up. No problem. And um, you and I, and uh, along with Ken, and Rod gets all the emails too, uh, you've been able to chime in a few times directly to us, as well as on Facebook and Twitter and all of the above. Uh, You've been with us for this journey since the beginning. Did you start listening right with The Cage when we released that one?
7: No, I think I started listening about, no 10 or so episodes in. Okay, so early
1: on. Yeah. Early on. And... um, I I just sort of you, you've been very vocal about uh, ideas, thoughts, criticism, positive and negative of Mission Log, and uh, so I, I guess I'm coming to you to say, how have we done? <laughs> how are we doing? <laughs> should we keep this up?
7: Yes, yeah, you should definitely keep it up. You're you're okay. doing better than when you started. <laughs> okay, all right. I used to get. Um, much more upset with the uh, podcast than I, than I do now.
1: Well, we don't want to make you upset. Uh, we, we want to give you food for thought, and we want to challenge ideas, but uh, our intention is never to upset, so uh, sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> okay. We hope there weren't too many sleepless nights.
7: No, it wasn't that kind of upset.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, well, well, tell me, you know, you've been coming along on this journey with us. You, you've been listening to the show. Have you been going back and watching the episodes as well? Uh, Or are you you just sort of relying on memory and our recap when you listen to a show?
7: Um, I've been sometimes I've been watching the episode just before the podcast, and sometimes I've been watching it just afterward.
1: Okay.
7: Uh, particularly if you say something that that I really disagree with. If I hadn't seen it already, I'll go back and rewatch it. Got it. Got Uh, it. Because a lot of this stuff, I haven't watched the episodes in a very long time. So maybe it's just my my memory of it versus what's really in the episode.
1: Got it, got it. Well, well tell me a little bit about uh, over this last year and a half or so. Has your perspective of the original series changed at all? I mean, are, are you looking at things with sort of a, a different perspective than before? Or are we just sort of more noise <laughs> talking about TOS?
7: Well, when you know when you guys say things that I disagree with, then it makes me go back and look at the episode more closely.
1: Mm. Uh, so, um, like, like what? G- give us an example, uh, if you if you don't mind. Well,
7: for example, in *Tholian Web*, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, they, you were talking about um, the way that McCoy is is his character is morphed into you know, whatever is needed for the episode. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't recall it being that way. So I went re- back and rewatched the episode mm-hmm. just to, just to be sure. Right. And I still kind of disagree with you on it,
1: but fair enough. Fair enough. In yeah. that
7: particular case, I think oftentimes he, he is used in that way, but I didn't see it in that case.
1: Yeah. 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 The web, I think is a, a difficult episode because it is so well known and it is so well regarded. I think just because it's very iconic yeah, you know, iconic kind of imagery. Yeah, yeah. You you, you say Tholian web and people can picture it in their minds right away. But uh, I know for me, going back and rewatching it with the purpose of putting together a mission log episode, um, it, where I was being more critical um, and not not just the level of criticism at it, but trying to think critically about it. Um, there was a lot that I felt didn't necessarily hold up. We got some good character moments. Um, but overall, I felt like, well, okay, this is maybe better than the average, but I'm not excited about that one. At that point, you know what I mean?
7: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we we exchanged some notes on on mm-hmm. Twitter about this. It's, mm-hmm. uh, that for me, it was there was just some something weird about it uh, rewatching it. Yeah, that I that I didn't recall from seeing it originally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, are are there other episodes that maybe you you got to rewatch and then you you were absolutely dumbstruck at how awesome it was, or maybe you watched an episode and you were shattered by how awful it was in retrospect?
7: Not really. I actually, I think for the most part, my 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 broad impression of the episodes have stayed the same. You know, because I watched them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I yeah, um, you know, used to when a new episode when it, excuse me when I, when I would watch an episode i I used to see how many seconds it would take me to identify which episode it was it just <laughs> got to the point where I could just pick them out that quickly right um but then I didn't watch them for years and years, um so I don't quite have that ability anymore but so i I say I watched them enough that that my broad impressions of the episodes haven't really changed but it's it's more in the details
1: yeah yeah. Well, tell me about a little bit about your fandom and your history with Star Trek. Did you grow up watching it, or did you come to it later?
7: Yeah. Well, um, let's see. Um, well, I'm I'm turning fifty this year, mm-hmm. um, so I, I didn't watch them when they originally aired. I watched them in, in syndication. Um, I guess I watched them a lot. Um, I remember going to the library when I was like like 9 or 10, and seeing um, a novelization, a Star Trek novelization, and getting really excited because the artwork on the front of the book had the picture of the Enterprise. I didn't even, you know, the the resolution on the TV was low enough I didn't realize what the registration number for the Enterprise was. And I could read it off the cover of this book, and I was just so excited.
1: (laughs) How cool. How very cool. And did you stick with it through, like, Next Gen, and you you kind of followed along as Star Trek changed and evolved? (laughs)
7: yeah well, I watched the animated series when they came out, um, but i I recall I, you know, I I went recently rewatched them, and I don't remember them very well um, and then I was reading onto Wikipedia and apparently they didn't air a lot when they were, when they originally were on the air
1: right.
7: so right um, so I, I think I kind of recall that they were kind of hard to see that the, that the network wasn't showing them consistently
1: yeah
7: um. When Next Generation came out, I started to watch it, um, <laughs> but I just had a hard time getting into it. Hmm. Um, and it was also, you know, it was right around the time that I was, you know, got out of college and was at my first job, and and was working a lot, right? So right. it just didn't really fit into to my life at that point. Um, but you know, I was among the uh, the, the Wesley Crusher haters. Uh, <laughs>
1: Well, as a, a fan who grew up with the original series, then, if that, that was your first series, what about that episode, stick, or what about that series, rather, sticks with you? You know, why why is that the go-to series that we're still talking about 50 years later?
7: That's a good question. I mean, a lot of it might just be familiarity. It, you know, it's been around the longest, so mm-hmm. it's the one that people are most familiar with. Um but also, you know, the storylines, the, story lines, the uh, there's, um, uh, I don't know if universal is the word, but you know, they, they told a lot of common stories that a lot of people could identify with. And this positive, I mean, the positive view of the future, mm-hmm. it's a lot of things a lot of people go on. That's, that's, I think that's one of the reasons I liked it so much. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know if I have anything to add here that other people haven't said a million times that, but I, you know, it all comes down to that basic kind of stuff.
1: Well uh before I uh let you go did you have any uh questions or or comments for mission log
7: Sometimes when you guys are analyzing an episode it seems like you get you get hung up on an idea to the point that it, I think it degrades the criticism that you're doing of the episode you just seem to get Fixated on a on a and sometimes it's. I, I think maybe it's the humor of it that you're both sort of bouncing off of each other, of the humor of of particular lines. And I think you're you're missing some something. sometimes when you get into that, that mode of, of analysis.
1: Hmm. Oh, it's, well, it's interesting. Let's talk about that because uh, what we've always wanted to do is ha- have a light tone. We, we don't want Mission Log to be academic. Um, we don't want it to be a chore for people to listen to. And that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And we always felt like when we come out of the the story synopsis, because we, we want to do that to make sure everybody's kind of on the same page as we go forward, that that next few minutes is a good time to kind of decompress to uh to point out the things that were funny or weird and and we have a little fun with that and then we try to get down to the serious stuff to find out what sticks after you throw everything at the wall what sticks um and yeah I, I think there are episodes where maybe they've just been so goofy to us and it's purely a subjective thing um that we've we've had a bit of fun with it and those resonate with some listeners, and they don't with others, obviously. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and then when we get into the, the topical stuff, um, I, I think that that gets to be a little bit difficult only because we, we want to pick the main things that really spoke to us. Um, and we do have to make that decision about what gets left out. Um, so every now and then we will fixate on on an idea or two and they may be totally different ideas from what somebody else picks up on um in an episode w- were there any that that just really stuck in your craw um
7: well you know obviously the the, the you know, um, the sexism thing i, I think mm-hmm. you guys got better on on describing something as sexism that i would see as sexism mm-hmm. but earlier on particularly ken and i think you know Ken was critical of me on, on one of the earlier uh, supplementals that you guys did, mm-hmm. um, because I made some comment on Twitter um, mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, whenever I hear Ken say sexism, I know to skip forward. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, sometimes you would get in, on to, into a uh, discussion of sexism that I saw more as a negative portrayal of a key character who just happens to be female. Mm-hmm. That I, that I, I didn't see it as sexism, yeah. um, and particularly earlier on, it seems like uh, particularly Ken was was doing that more frequently.
1: Uh, so, um, so let, let's take a character like uh, Dr. Janice Lester. Uh, cra- oh God, yeah, yeah. Cra- crazy female individual or a totally sexist archetype?
7: Well, that's an interesting one because I I, I watched that episode before I heard your podcast uh-huh. and. Uh, just before, and my take on it before was uh, a crazy individual. Yeah. Uh, so you know, yeah, you know, I don't know if if Starfleet actually has this policy that that women can't I, um, can't be captains of starships. Um man, the way I was seeing it before was that that she's just completely whacked, and I can't you know reliably accept anything that she's saying as as, as truth. Right. But now I have to go back and after listening to um, the last podcast is, wait, did I remember all Did the other characters make make references that back up what she was saying?
1: Right. I I think that's the difficulty of addressing the sexism in Star Trek is that it it is a product of its time. So we always have to try to contextualize that. Um, And we know that there were people who were trying to push through an idea of equality that, uh, as George Takei says, that Starfleet is a meritocracy. You rise based on your abilities, not based on who you are. Um, and these are all very good things. And we get to see that every now and then. We get to see the crew tell, well, we get to see the captain telling Uhura, you're the only one who can do this. You know, you're critical. You, you are an important piece of this team. But then you get to later episodes and they're not all perfectly consistent and they they were written by different people and they had different hands uh, uh, adjusting and editing what went in and out of those episodes where the reactions to somebody usually speak more than just what what an individual character is doing. And I think that's the downfall of um, Turnabout Intruder. It's not a terrible idea. And Janice Lester is not a terrible character in concept, but the way that she is dealt with is a little hard to swallow for a 21st century audience, <laughs> you know?
7: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah.
7: But on the other hand, you know, if, if it would have been portrayed in a way, you know, it, it was entertainment for the 60s. You know, you couldn't do yeah. a lot of the stuff that the way people see things now, you couldn't portray that in a story in the 60s.
1: Right. Right. Because.
7: Yeah a lot of people wouldn't even understand, you know, what you were trying, what you were saying, right. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to follow the story.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's the, the fun part about for me anyway, of doing mission log is that, you know, I, I, grew up with Star Trek like a lot of other people did, like I'm sure the vast majority of our audience did. And now we get to, we get to put on our 21st century perspective and look at the show and figure out, well, what really does work and what doesn't. You know, if we say that one of the things that makes Star Trek work is its implied and its explicit morality tales um, and this vision of the future, well, let's pick apart that vision of the future. Let's see what pieces of that really work and what we really want for ourselves and uh, and hopefully get rid of the stuff that doesn't work, you know?
7: Well, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: All right, Alan, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again in the future. I really do appreciate it, and thank you so much for listening to Mission Log and for being an active participant in this uh, this whole kind of larger conversation that we're having about Star Trek.
7: Hey, it's fun. <laughs>
1: Well, I had the great pleasure and great fun of sitting down with Vic Mignogna, the creator and star of Star Trek Continues, to talk about the original series and talk about his vision for Star Trek Continues. Now, because we're not perfect, we're not like Nomad, there was a technical error during the recording. So we'll actually join in right after the beginning, where Vic is talking about how he found Star Trek at the same time that his parents got divorced, and what an impact that had on his life.
8: There was this strong leader, man, and I, I well, wow, Captain Kirk, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with the show, and you know what it did? It inspired me to start building things, painting things, sculpting things, making home movies, making costumes, trying creative endeavors that to that point in my life, I had never yet tried. So I got to tell you, I credit Star Trek with having jump-started, if you will, my, my creativity, to discover that I could do things, that I had a kind of an inclination toward things that I didn't even know I could do. Now, fast forward many years later, my degree is in film. I've been acting since I was 10 or 12 years old and uh, and have developed all these different skills in production. And I get to marry my childhood passion with all of the skills in production and acting and, that I've developed over the years.
1: So why Star Trek is a very, very big playing field. It's a very big sandbox, as they say, that Gene Roddenberry created. That's right. So why go back and reimagine, if, if you will, this sort of alternate history, this
8: alternate timeline? Well, that's easy because, there, because nothing touches the original series.
1: Why? Why is that?
8: Because it started at all. There is something unique about the original series of Star Trek. And okay. to be honest with you, if studios knew what it was... They'd keep doing it, but they can't. They, they just, they somehow they, don't, they seem to miss it. And uh, no offense to any of the subsequent series, but for me, qualifying that, for me, every incarnation of Star Trek got further and further away from whatever it was that made the original series so magical. It would take something as impactful as the original series to create a legacy that has lasted 50 years and... How many series and movies and books and video games and conventions and on and on. There was something very, very special about it. And I, I, all I can say is that when we started Star Trek Continues, we, we decided from the very beginning, we don't just want to do a fan thing. We don't just want to run around firing phasers and fighting the Klingons. We want to tell stories. We want to tell stories of ethical questions and moral drama and and social issues which is what made the original series so endearing and we want to create relationship with the between the characters that again was what made the original series so endearing fan films don't normally dive that deep yeah and we wanted to because from the very beginning i had determined i'm going to have actors Playing these roles they 're not going to be just fans they 're going to be actors, so we can tell stories that command that demand that the actors go deeper and do things like they did in the original series and so that 's been one of the biggest challenges is finding stories uh, of that kind of pathos and ethical depth um, That the original series was so well known for.
1: So if we knew the magic formula, we would all be able to recreate this over and over again. (laughs) But but I think we don't. And I I think part of the thing we're trying to figure out with Mission Log is what is that magic? What what are the elements that have to come together?
8: I think it was a common, I think it was a combination. And I'm Mm -hmm. completely thinking on my feet here. Mm -hmm. I had not thought about this, but I think here and now that it was a combination of relevant Moral, ethical, social issues presented in a completely creative way. It wasn't just, let's talk about racism. No, somebody came up with a brilliant allegorical way to present the issue that was thought provoking and creative and challenging. And yet the issue was still very clearly communicated. I think there's a talent to that. Not, not just everybody can do that. Right. And, uh, and the writers and creators of the original series were really good at it.
1: You made the decision to do Star Trek Continues as the, literally the continuation. The, this is the imagined.
8: Right. We wanted to pick Star. it up immediately where yeah. the original series ended, which would have been Turnabout Intruder, right. and carry it on as if it had never ended. I mean, we all know the famous opening sequence. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission. But they didn't do five years. They did three years. So what if there were a year four and a year five? And the long-term vision for Star Trek Continues, if it continues as we hope it will, would be to move the story to a point where we end Star Trek Continues with something dramatic happening that Kirk gets promoted – McCoy goes off and they're disbanded. And you basically set the stage for the motion picture. That would be the long-term goal.
1: You had to go back and look at Star Trek and you had to think about Star Trek probably from a different angle than you did before. Right. I wanna know what you discovered during that process because if I bring it back to mission log, you know, Ken and I got to watch all these episodes over again, uh-huh. with fresh eyes and try to figure out do these stories actually hold up? Do they hold up as well as we think
8: Well, they do? I don't know what you guys decided, but uh, if you were to ask me, I would say yes. That's one of the reasons that I love it so much, and that's one of the things I discovered. Mm-hmm. They hold up. Mm-hmm. Why? Because like we said two minutes ago, the stories are timeless. The you know We struggle now with the very same things. It may look a little different. It may have somehow morphed in, into a something different. But humanity struggles with a lot of the same things throughout the centuries, throughout the decades, as it were, from the 60s. They just take different forms. But human beings struggle with the same basic things. And, and I think that, you know what, in my voice acting career, I go and do these convention appearances all over the, the world, and I speak to tens of thousands of animation fans. And when I share with them my passion for Star Trek, a lot of them who weren't even born At that time, go home and watch the original series and they'll write me fan letters and they'll say, I am blown away by Star Trek. I love the original series of Star Trek. Why would a 14 year old kid in 2014 love the original series of Star Trek that was made in the 60s? Why? Clearly, because something continues to resonate. There's something timeless about these stories. And uh, that's what the first thing that I discovered was they do hold up. Uh, a lot of the photography is as beautiful today as anything else i 've ever seen. The way the the, uh, the 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 images are crafted, the way they 're lit and composed are beautiful, especially you watch them on blu-ray it's just it's like it's hard to believe that they shot this fifty years ago.
1: If this show was a, sort of a good platform for this exploration of you know ethical and and human drama what do you think here 50 years later the takeaways are like what what are the messages that are actually resonant with today's audience
8: well i i think there are many um i'd have i'd have to give it a, you know that's a big question but i would say um you know there're still elements in humanity of greed and what it motivates people to uh religious questions uh the nature of uh of uh, different races and how they interact terrorism war i mean private little war uh let that be your last battlefield um we've got wars going on all over the world right now that hasn't changed There are tons of, tons of issues nowadays, you know, uh, genetics, uh, cloning, euthanasia, uh, you know, tons of moral ethical issues that I think if Star Trek were continuing, pardon the pun, Mm -hmm. today, it would address those issues in its own unique, creative way. And that's what we want to do. We want to tell those kind of stories.
1: What what were the surprises to you when you went back and rewatched and kind of prepared yourself for search?
8: <laughs> you know, one thing that really surprised me was that the as we have been building the sets with the the greatest amount of care and detail that we could, taking the original soundstage blueprints and and building what we did, we have a ninety six hundred square foot facility in Jacksonville, Florida that is within inches of the original stage layout Um, and what I found when I went back and looked at, at screen caps and stuff I'm like wow they just threw that wall up it doesn't even line up with the wall beside it and oh my gosh look at that thing laying on the floor and oh For goodness sake, look, there's, there's a newspaper laying on the floor in this shot. And and this shot of Spock on the bridge, he's, you know, they pulled that section of the bridge away from beside Spock station so that they could get the camera shot. But oh my gosh, you can see the two by fours. I mean, (laughs) you start looking at it with, which, with much more critical eyes because you want to replicate it as closely as you can. And we partnered up with some friends of ours at Starship Farragut, Mike Bednar, John Broughton, and and pooled our resources and poured tens of thousands of dollars into rebuilding these sets to a degree that had never been done before since they were, since they were dismantled in the late 60s when the show ended. Um, and now you can literally step into one end of the corridor and walk down the corridor into every room, back down the corridor into another room. It's all interconnected. It's all laid out exactly the way it was in the original soundstage.
1: This is something that you do constantly. I've seen you several times in the last year, and, and I know that every single <laughs> it's time— It's
8: become a I've much seen... bigger project than I thought it would right. be. <laughs> i got to tell you. You're working on it. Oh, all the time. Story, all the time. You
1: can't make a profit from it. This is That's correct. Totally independent. That's correct. And when you're done with it, you release it on the web, and you just sort of let the fans go at it.
8: Well, you, when you ask me what's the end game, yeah. in the words of Captain Kirk, I don't know. <laughs> but I will tell you this. Somebody asked me the other day, how much money are you spending on this, you know, and you yeah. can't make anything back? Ladies and gentlemen, some things are bigger than money. And maybe I'm just old enough now that I understand that. But here's what I told them. You know what I told them? There's only two things in the world you spend money for. Think about this, John. All the money you earn, you do two things with it. One, you pay your bills. And two, you do things you like. Am I wrong? Once you pay your bills... You buy stuff you want to buy, you go on trips, you get nice clothes, you buy a cool car, you join a club. Once you pay your bills, the only other thing you do with your money is things that give you pleasure. Right? Right. This gives me an enormous amount of joy and pleasure. To get to recreate to this level of accuracy and authenticity, The singular thing that, as a nine-year-old boy, changed me and jump-started my creativity, the chance to live in that world, play in that world, and to find out that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out there, just like me, who would if they could, and to get to vicariously, you know, do this and, and, you know, and share it with all of these other people. Um, it is, is a great, great thrill, and it's a great honor.
1: I don't know if you've talked about this uh, on the air before or publicly before, but I want to ask you about your friendship with William Shatner.
8: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Talk about a privilege. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, it's funny because when I was a little boy, yeah, big Star Trek fan that I was – you know, 90 pounds soaking wet in my little Captain Kirk uniform that I made and would go to conventions. I went to Star Trek conventions when I was a little boy in Pittsburgh. And I met D. Kelly and I met Jimmy Dewan and I met Nichelle Nichols and I met Walter Koenig and I met Leonard Nimoy even. But I never met William Shatner and he was my favorite, right? So my voice acting work has allowed me to I've done about 200, probably over 200 different series and video games by now over the last 14 or 15 years, but it's developed to a point where I get invited to conventions as a guest. So while they may invite Erin Gray as an actress from Buck Rogers, or they may invite George Takei as an actor from Star Trek, they'll invite me as an animation voice actor guest and... Uh, about three years ago, I was, a I was a guest at Phoenix Comic-Con and I was literally signing autographs n- at the table next to, uh, George Takei and, uh, I had a really good line of people waiting and, and George's manager came up to me out of the blue. I didn't know who he was just, he was George's manager. And he came up and said, who the hell are you? He's like I, this huge line of people who I want who are you? Then I introduced myself and we kind of hit it off. And he said, you know what? When you get back to LA, let's have lunch. Maybe I could represent you and book you into other events. And I thought, well, that'd be great. Because I mean, I love, you know, sci-fi cons as much as anybody. So I had lunch with the guy. Come to find out he's one of the most respected and well-established event managers in the business for 30 years. I don't even know. Maybe more. I don't know. And he represents everyone in Star Trek, including Bill Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Patrick Stewart, Marina Sirtis, Michael Dorn, everybody in Star Trek he handles. And he also handles Stan Lee. And he wanted to represent me. Well, the first thing that popped into my mind was, I may get a chance to finally meet William Shatner. He booked me into some events with William Shatner. And I got the chance to not only meet him, but to end up having dinner and sitting in a green room and chatting and sharing a cab and and I mean literally to the point where he like you know call me Bill I'm like uh, okay Bill I mean I and I finally got up the courage uh, just a short while ago when we were at a convention in a shore leave in Baltimore we were we were at dinner and I said you know Bill I I've never told you this because I didn't, I didn't want you to. You know call security on me or anything, but when I was nine years old, you know and my parents divorced, and I discovered star trek you know your your role and your character became a father figure and a role model to me, and you just wait for the response, thinking, "What is it going to be and he leaned over and put his hand on my arm and looked right into my eyes and said, "That's extraordinary." They say never meet your heroes.
1: Yeah,
8: I've heard people say that. And I am very happy to report that in this instance, uh, I, I've had the unequaled privilege to not only meet him, but do events with him and spend some personal social time interacting with him and love him to death and think he's just a wonderful man. And he had such a big influence on my life i can't even imagine what it must be like to be william shatner i How could you even imagine to to have played iconic roles on television um and films but i i was so, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak with him, you know actor to actor right. peer to peer like right. literally share a table yeah. where i'm signing, and ten feet away is william shatner signing, and it's such an unbelievable honor and privilege. That I was friends, I've been friends with Bill for, you know, for a few years now, two, two and a half years now. And for the first two years, I never even spoke the words Star Trek. I mean, he had no clue if I even ever watched the show. It was never a topic of conversation. We talked about anything and everything else. He's even asked me questions about my anime work. And I, he asked me about shows that I've been in and I tell him the stories. And in the inside, the 12 year old inside is like, who gets to do this? Who gets the privilege to interact with somebody that meant so much to them in their life like this? It's I could die tomorrow and I have I have been blessed beyond what I deserve. Cool. In every way.
1: And the place to find you is Star Trek Star
8: Trek Continues.com Official Star Trek continues on Facebook. Like us. Um, I will, I'd like to say our first episode, Pilgrim of Eternity, which was a sequel to the, uh, to the Apollo episode, Who Mourns for Adonis. It's, uh, it's on YouTube. It's on Vimeo. You can go to our website and click on episodes and you can watch it there or you can go to YouTube. Um, and in less than five days, our second episode will be premiering at the Dallas Sci-Fi Expo. And we're shooting our third episode in March, and uh, it's it's full on. Cool. Uh, we're excited to be doing what we're doing, and and love anyone to come and be a part of it. How many more are you going to make? Uh, you know what? As long as I can, as long as I can continue playing a thirty five year old guy, <laughs> I keep thinking you know one day I'm just not going to be able to to, to do that. I, it won't be believable anymore. But you know, as you to be honest with you, as long as we can find good stories, yeah. And as long as we can have the support of people who like what we're doing and continue to, you know, to help support us so that we can continue to make it. All right. So now we're going to
1: welcome another listener to our TOS wrap up here on Mission Log. And let's say hi to Alice. Hello, Alice. Hello. So glad to have you join us now, um, Alice. You reached out to us very early in the run of Mission Log, and um, I, I think you need to explain, well, you need to explain to me and Ken, and then explain to our listeners that you are sort of a research fanatic, if I may use that word, <laughs> only in the best possible sense of the term.
0: That's, um, that's very true. That's a kind way of explaining it. <laughs> <that's the> <laughs> Well, My uh, boss says that my meticulous tendencies are very handy in the job.
1: Okay, so and, and you are meticulous about Star Trek as well, Yes, as, yes. as I have learned. So now, yes. tell us, how long have you been a Star Trek fan?
0: Well, I remember seeing uh, the Corbin Mite Maneuver was the very first episode that I ever saw when I was eight years old, when it first came on. Wow. And it was be- because my mom read about it in the TV guide and thought she would really like it. And so we all watched it together. And uh, after that, we watched every single episode and we were not allowed to speak except during the commercials.
4: Oh, I like your mom.
0: (laughs) 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 So uh, that was, that was the beginning. And then when it went into reruns, when I was in high school, then I really went crazy. Um, And I was reading the novelizations. I read those Blish novelizations over and over and over again. And, then during uh, college, we had sort of an impromptu uh, club that would meet in my dorm room uh, at four o'clock when it would the reruns would come on, and you know. So I've spent many many years watching Star Trek over and over and over again.
4: Now, did you follow along into uh, Next Gen? I, I'm assuming you kind of gave the, uh, the the cartoons a miss, and maybe if I'm if I'm wrong about that, correct me. But did you follow along into Next Gen and the uh, and the other series?
0: I have every single series. Um yeah, I watched them all. I don't remember if I watched the animates when they were on the air, but I certainly have them and I've watched them all. Um, you know, on I I think I recorded them when they showed them on Cartoon Network years ago and now I have them on DVD. So yeah, I've watched I've watched all of Star Trek. Wow. <laughs> Lots of times. I lost count of how many times I saw the first movie in the theater.
1: Nice, nice. So uh, now, first of all, how did you find Mission Log? And then what compelled you? Uh, You you started writing to us, like I said, pretty early on. And uh, you send pretty extensive notes, thoughts, critiques, ideas. And and when I say pretty extensive, I mean... (laughs) volumes to fill up a, a bookshelf yes. in the Library of Congress. Um, so it, it's Yes, it's you, quite you've a,
0: been very patient with me, John.
1: As I tell everybody, I, I receive and I appreciate everything. We get a lot of uh, commentary, and uh, some of it is repeatable in public. Um, <laughs> we get a lot of commentary from listeners, and um, you, send, you send very well-researched stuff, Uh, So I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, how you decided to do that, why you decided to do it, and where you go for your research. I I think it's fascinating.
0: Well, I found the podcast because – I had only become aware of podcasts shortly before I found yours. Um, and I had f- first started listening to Shakespeare podcasts, actually. And then I thought, what ever other interests do I have? Well, Star Trek, obviously. So I started searching for Star Trek podcasts. And I liked the sound of what you guys were doing, you know, analyzing it, rather than just being sort of a, oh, what are they wearing kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something very interesting to me. Um, and as I said, you know, I've collected, well, or I guess I didn't say, I've collected lots of Star Trek things over the years, but it, it tends not to be like figures and uh, photographs and stuff. It tended to be research books, you know, so so like B. Joe's uh, Concordance was the first one, and then the compendiums as they came out, and the companions, you know, all the things that tend to be about what happened behind the scenes or um you know what was in the episodes who starred in the episodes uh background trivia you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um so that i started that pretty early on and i have a fairly extensive library (laughs) of those things
4: have you so i'm sorry have you checked out uh these are the voyages it's a new it's a new compendium that's coming out i think uh, it's only up
1: up to season two right uh, season two is imminent, and it's by uh, Mark Cushman. It'll be out toward, I believe, toward the end of February or March of 2014.
0: No, I just got the uh, the Federation history. I just got that for Christmas. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of behind <laughs> on on getting things. So no, I haven't heard of that, but it sounds like I should get that. Well, I mean, but I, any- I,
4: I was wondering, well, forgive me. I don't want to tell you to get it if you've already got a bunch of stuff. I was just curious how you thought it stacked up. I found it to be a fairly impressive sort of episode by episode. Honestly, it would have been a great thing to have before we started Mission Log. Yes, <laughs> But unfortunately, uh, yeah. by the time we found Season One, we were already in to se- uh, By the time we saw Season One, I think we were yeah. actually already in the Season Three of Mission yeah. Log, and he's not there yet. So, th- yeah. that's unfortunately kind of catching up with us. But yeah, it's 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 uh, it's actually a neat little resource. Sorry, no, I didn't I mean to interrupt yeah. you. Go ahead.
0: No, that's okay. No, I don't mind building up my library. I hadn't heard of that. I will definitely put it on my my uh, wish list. Um so then um as i was listening to you guys's podcasts i thought oh yes and so i just started like keeping notes of things i wanted to say and at one point i thought boy i really don't have time to be dealing with this i just i have you know because i do a lot of stuff uh, <laughs> as you can imagine i get intensely involved in things and uh, <laughs> but i kept thinking about i kept thinking about what was said in the podcast and what I wanted to say to you and the ideas that I had. And I could only say so much to my family and friends before they get tired of hearing it. So I finally realized what I had to do is I kind of had to do a core dump it using an old computer term. (laughs) I don't know if you know that term, but I basically had to write it all down and send it to you so I could stop thinking about it. (laughs) So, so you kind of have been my venting dumping ground as it were.
1: Great. So, uh, so we're a couple of, uh, we're a couple of therapists and, exactly. uh, that's good to know. I hope your, uh, insurance covers that. You'll be receiving a bill.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good.
1: Um, but yeah, so, so you've sent this, uh, you, you sort of preemptively will send notes about an episode yeah. and then after we do an episode, you will send notes about our Mission log about our podcast. So you're you're really getting intensely involved in an episode uh, yes. from from both angles. And um, so I'm I'm curious. I mean, you took this on. You decided to go back and rewatch everything and listen to us. And um, thank you, by the way, for that. Um, uh-huh. But but I'm curious. Can you pinpoint? Were there any big sort of surprises to you? Like, um, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe that that episode was. Uh, so much worse than I remember it, or hey, here's this new thing that I got to discover, and now it's totally changed my point of view. Uh, I'm just wondering if anything really jumps out at you.
0: Well, you know, as I said, I've watched I've watched the original series millions of times, probably. So I always had my favorites, and nothing about this changed my favorites or my worst. Um, I don't know, Ken. If you know that, I also think the alternative factor is like the worst. What did I, what did no. I say, John? That it was relentlessly incomprehensible. <laughs> right, no, right. You, say, uh, you, say,
4: you you're saying that to me, but you should be saying that to John. You guys yeah. are, yes. are are compadres John, yeah. on that. That's and, not, and that, totally is not yes. that is not that right. is not the worst episode of Star Trek.
1: She's right. It, that it, is not,
4: Ken. Yeah.
0: Kenna,
1: our listeners are never wrong.
4: The worst. <laughs> if, if I didn't have headphones well, right now, I would stick my fingers in my ears <laughs> and start going, you know. Live. Yeah,
0: well, no, yeah, no, and that was another thing that, as I uh, have, you know, you know, when you live a long time, you realize that everything is so subjective, you know, and everybody, you know, someone's worst episode is another person's favorite episode, and you know, and that's. That's just the way that life is, you know, well, so the, it's the you
4: know. one thing I would say, except for the people that were in it. I don't think the alternative factor is anybody's favorite episode.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I,
4: I, I'm with you on that. I don't right. think. Yeah. yeah. But sorry. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Anyway. So, um, yeah, the one of the things that one of the big things that came out is, boy, I hate analyzing the funny ones. Mm. Um, <laughs> because. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, trouble with tribbles, especially, I can laugh at that one, you know, just fine. But analyzing it really made me mad. Wow. And the same with *Thy Mud*. Um, I don't know uh, because they, they're just not—they don't seem to be up to Star Trek standards, if you, if I can say that, or what. It's not what I want Star Trek to be about, or talk about, or something. Uh, so minute. if I'm just, you know, so if I'm uh, just sitting and laughing at it, it's so far, it's okay.
4: Okay. I wasn't sure I was understanding what you're saying. So it's not that you're angry that the comedy episodes exist. It's you don't really want to think about them too much if they're decidedly comedy.
0: Right. Well, it's not that they're comedy, but the, the comedy ones, when when I look at them, um, the stuff that they're about uh, makes me mad. But if I'm not thinking about them, they're funny. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense but um but that but that was an interesting thing to for me to discover because I never really realized that before.
1: You know, it, that's really interesting because when we did iMUD, um, we got a lot of response from people saying like, oh, stop trying so hard. Stop trying to look for a moral <laughs> message meaning. It's just fun. And I think Ken and I sort of had the approach of, well, well A, the, the job, the mission of Mission Log is to look for <laughs> a well, moral yeah. meaning yeah. message. Yeah. Um, e- even if there isn't one explicitly there from the writer, there might be something that implicitly we as the audience take away from it. Um, and then the other interesting thing is that I think with Trouble with Tribbles, you know, that was one of our test episodes way, way back when. And we picked it specifically because we thought it would be difficult because there was no moral meaning or message in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we were both kind of shocked that there was some there, – there's some meat on those Tribbles if you dig mm-hmm. through the fur enough, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it is. I, I think it is memorable because it is a light comic episode. Everybody remembers yeah. Kirk with the tribbles falling yeah. on his head. Um, yeah. But it, at least you know there was kind of an attempt to do something with it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're applying a little too much value to it. In- oh, I don't think so. No? I, think,
4: I mean, <laughs> if, if you, if, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that David Gerald says, and if, mm. even if his episode I, I is not mm. your favorite episode, I mean, if, even if Tribbles is not your favorite episode, I mean, he's a guy who thinks about what he's writing. Yeah. He's not just trying to get you from like one scene to another scene to another scene to another scene. We just, I mean, obviously having just finished the season, uh, having just finished the original series, part of my problem with Turnabout Intruder, and there are many. <laughs> Part of yes. my problem with Turnabout Intruder was the fact that it just felt like we're, you know, OK, we need to get to this next scene. We need to get to this next scene. We need to get to this next scene. Right. Yeah. There didn't seem to yeah. be like an overall, like, you know, guiding principle or guiding, you know, a few things that they wanted to say. It was just more like, a, let's get through this. Let's get through this. Let's get through this. um yeah. So to me, I mean, even if The Trouble with Troubles is not your favorite episode and it's not my favorite episode, um, yeah. I think he knew what he was doing when he when he did it. He was also young, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a kid. He was early. Yeah, that, that yeah. was a that was an early writing thing, yeah. and a fan yeah. submission too, which is kind of uh, that's still mind-boggling. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> what uh, what are your favorite episodes, Alice?
0: Oh well my my ultimate favorite episode is Paradise Syndrome, which I know you guys are going to think is crazy, but um, what one of the things that I and I guess I knew this already, but it became all the more clear to me is my favorite episodes are mostly in season three, which I know uh, hmm. is is crazy. And, and it's because they're the ones where Kirk is in love and I really believe it. And it's very, and I think I just wrote that to you, John, in one of my voluminous mm-hmm. emails, that um, Kirk, when Kirk is in love, I really believe it. I'm really there. I'm really emotionally there in that episode. Even like in Requiem... From I know you were saying that um, it seemed like it happened so fast, but I totally believe that he is in love with Raina. I totally believe that he's in love with Mani and that she's in love with him in Paradise Syndrome. And um, one of the things you guys didn't talk about was, um, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was in the introduction to the 30th anniversary videos that someone said that, one of the directives they had gotten for the third season was that they wanted more romantic things. The executives' wives asked for more romantic storylines, mm-hmm. hmm. and um, and it worked on me. You know, that's all I could say. <laughs> um, so you know, so my most favorite is Paradise Syndrome. You know, in City and City in the Edge of Forever. And Requiem for Methuselah, you know, and so then I start to notice a, a pattern there that it's always, you know, and it isn't, I, I also like when Spock falls in love. Um, but my real favorites are the ones where Kirk is in love. And I, and I really like the story. Not every single one that where he's in love, but. Um,
4: I have no problem believing uh, Kirk in love in the Paradise Syndrome, but mostly that has to do with the fact that he has amnesia. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that's not I'm not saying that's why he's in love, but I have no problem, you know, believing him falling in love there because we're starting with a blank slate at the beginning of that episode, as opposed to, well, just pulled up to this planet. And, hey, you know what I mean? That's sort of.
0: Well, I'm. Yeah, I'm not talking about believing in any sort of logical way. I'm talking about I'm and I'm I'm thinking it's Shatner's acting that mm. totally convinces me. That he's in love when he's in love, you know, and uh, so I'm talking on a much more emotional level uh, than a logical level, because, uh, you know, because I can't disagree, you know, uh, there are plenty of logical situations where it doesn't make any sense for him to fall in love. <laughs> but I think, John, I said, who said love was uh, logical anyway? So, <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so those are my favorite. But I really like uh, Is There in Truth No Beauty as well. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Um mostly because that one scene where uh Kolos and uh Spock are mind melded mm-hmm. and um after he sets the ship on the right course and he talks about um uh what it's like to be inside a body, you know, because he's non corporeal, and he says, Um, you've encased yourself in these shells of flesh And you depend on language, this thing you call language, you depend on it for so much. But is any of you really its master? And I don't know, from the time I was a young girl, that caught my attention to think about that, you know, indeed, each of us is separate from each other. You know, no matter how uh, well I know my friend or my husband or my daughter or whatever, I'll never really know them as well as I could if I could, you know, mind meld with them or whatever. Um, you depend on language, and language is such a fragile and uh, uh, insubstantial thing to rely on for strong connections. And I mm. don't know. I really like that part of it. I, to me, that that scene is what that episode was all about. You know, that was the whole reason for that episode was to have that moment when you get to see life uh, our lives from the viewpoint of someone who doesn't have a body and you know what what life is like uh, you know what the difficulties that we experience because we're corporeal
1: are you going to stick with us for uh, for the coming seasons oh, are yeah? coming. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. I've
0: start. I've started watching the animated ones already. All
1: right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and are you, uh, are you terrified or, uh, uh, enthralled? How, how's that going so far?
0: With the animated, yeah. you know, um, I, when I got the DVDs, I watched them over again. And you know, the thing is that the stories are actually pretty good. It's the animation and the music that just are drive you insane.
1: Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. You know,
0: so, yeah. um, but some of the artwork, actually, some of the background artwork is really nice. But it's just, you know, it's that old animation, that uh, Hanna-Barbera quality kind of animation. Now, Hanna-Barbera
4: would be nice.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, they
1: make Hanna-Barbera look like Walt Disney Studios. I, I know, I know. And the music...
0: They use the same music over and over again, and that's the worst. I get the music playing over and over in my head, and I just want to shoot myself. Yeah, uh,
1: I'm I'm going to make all of their music my ringtones from now on (laughs) because I love it so much. Yeah.
0: Yeah, my cool. daughter was saying what they ought to do is you know they did the remastered episodes they ought to do remastering of the animateds because like I said the stories are good so they ought to remaster those don't you think they they must have you know they must be able to get the sound files of the voices and stuff and just redo them
1: eh, be careful what you wish for you never know I know I know, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right guys well uh, Alice thank you so much and thank you for your continued uh, support and enthusiasm for the show um, I, I know that I will always have a lot to read. <laughs> <The story laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's really cool of you we do appreciate it
0: oh, I'm glad thank you for having me on and thank you for doing what, what you do because it, uh, it really provides uh, something for people like me to dig our teeth into all
1: right and now I'd like to welcome Mission Log listener John no not, not me John the other John John how are you?
5: I'm doing great.
1: Good. Well, thank you for joining us for the TOS wrap-up. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to Star Trek and then what brought you to Mission Log.
5: Uh, Well, gee, I guess my dad brought me to Star Trek back in 1967 or so. I was three or four years old, and uh, I just remember watching it forever. And uh, after that, well, I grew up. And then I was browsing some podcasts on iTunes, and I ran across Mission Log. I thought, oh, I know what that means. <laughs> and I, I tuned in, and I can't, there I go. I'm calling it tuned in. <laughs> but I clicked in, and um, I've been an avid listener ever since.
1: It, was Star Trek always something that you thought of in terms of the morals, messages, meanings? Um, or has Mission Log sort of pointed you differently uh, given you a different perspective on Star
5: Trek uh, well it certainly given me a different perspective uh, but I think the first time I ever thought about it in those terms was when I ran across a book uh, a few years ago, well a lot of years ago called something like um, all I needed to know I learned from Star Trek oh
1: of course, yeah of course yeah, right.
5: yeah so it put me in that mode of thinking and then uh, Mission Walk is kind of segued right in with that
1: so you're probably a lot like me in the respect that being very young and growing up a Star Trek, at that time you saw it as spaceships and phasers and isn't Captain Kirk cool?
5: Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. then
1: you flash forward several years later and you're like, well, wait a minute, is there something more to this show? Um, mm-hmm. If there is indeed something more to this show, what what do you think it is that resonates with an audience today that makes us still want to talk about it
5: uh well as strange as it may seem uh being science fiction uh it seems like it's always relatable in everyday life um Mm. i know at surface value that sounds unlikely but uh all the time we get we're hit with new technologies and new things coming at us like the cell phone uh like electric cars computers that was all in our future years ago, but eventually it became reality, and we kind of had to learn, how do you deal with these things? Oh, wait a minute. I remember. This is how Mr. Spock or Mr. Scott dealt with that, so it was sort of a primer a tutorial. We were ready for it, yep. and it, it's it's always relatable, or at least so far.
1: Well, well. so do you find that there are things that you have picked up from Star Trek that have influenced you either you know, personally or professionally? Um, that are the, I I don't know, either the the good lessons or the good habits or or something is expressed in this piece of fiction.
5: Hmm. That's a hard question for me to to answer because uh, it's always been a touchstone for me. It's something I can always look back to. And it's like, if I don't know how to handle a situation, well, how is it handled there? Because there's always, it's almost like the Bible, you know, there's always a story that sort of fits the situation. Hmm. And, you can use it as a guide.
1: So, so you need the WWKD shirt. What would Kirk do? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Although, um, w- would you consider yourself more of in the Kirk camp of uh, go in and change an entire civilization uh, because it feels like the right thing to do? Or do you fall into the Spock camp of maybe we should study this first <laughs> and figure out the logical approach?
5: Athos, pathos, or logos, yeah. Right, right. There's a man for every season, every flavor. I think I I try to follow uh, Spock's philosophy, but then again, it seems like I always end up in McCoy's camp. Oh,
1: okay, the compassionate soul, yeah.
5: Exactly. I'm not an alpha dog, you know, and that's what I kind of consider Kirk. So (laughs) I'm more of a watcher, participant.
1: In rewatching Star Trek, were you kind of – surprised shocked or or kind of you knew this was coming that there are things that kirk does that just seem like in retrospect "Ooh, i wish he hadn't just pulled the rug out from under this civilization that will probably now fall <laughs> <You know?
5: laughs> uh he's a human being and he makes mistakes so in a way he's like a big brother you know you can just watch him and see him do something stupid and uh, think, okay, now we got to deal with this as a family. How do we handle this? You know, so you give him a pass. Mm. Uh, he's that clumsy uh, person. Sometimes he does great things, and sometimes he does uh, questionable things. You know, mm. but he's part of the family. You know,
1: mm. yeah, very much so. What, what do you think are the the takeaway lessons from Star Trek? Like if we had to paint with a very broad brush and say that after seventy nine episodes, here are the big messages, the big important meanings. To get from the series as a whole, what do you think those things are to you?
5: To me personally, mm-hmm. hmm. well, ah, geez, that, that that's that's a difficult thing for me to just distill it down into just a very few things. Um, the future isn't so dark. Uh, there are going to be cool things coming up, just like Edith Keeler says. You know, things worth living for, and it's going to be interesting and it's going to be fun and just hang on if you're having a dark day you know uh, it's, it's going to turn out okay and I think that's the number one thing I get out of Star Trek you know Star Trek was a hopeful future well, I, that's so cliche <laughs> people say that all the time but it's true it's true uh, prior to that every science fiction story I can think of was something invading us or killing us or you know we're going to end up in a despotic or dystopian future you know it's just sad yeah. uh, there's some great science fiction I mean Blade Runner for example you know but, um, you know, Star Trek is not that. Star Trek is the things will be okay, and we're going to have adventure, you know. Right. So.
1: Well, all of those things, unless you actually are Edith Keeler.
5: Uh, true. Right. True.
1: Okay. For everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're okay. All right, John. Uh, they, a, any uh, last, you know, comments or questions for Mission Vlog?
5: What is going to be the next series that you all cover?
1: Uh, Okay, so after this episode airs, then we go right into the animated series. Now, the animated Uh series, we're going to do two at a time. Mm -hmm. So we'll have two of the half-hour animatives that we'll do in one mission log. Uh, So that'll take 11 weeks. We got 22 Mm -hmm. episodes, 11 weeks. Then movies one through six. Uh uh, Because I feel like if we do it that way, then we're treating the original cast The, you know, Star Trek classic Uh as a contained unit from the original series up through the sixth movie. Mm -hmm. Then when we do Next Gen and then you get into Generations and Mm -hmm. the rest of the TNG movies, I feel like Generations is a Next Gen movie with Mm -hmm. special guest star Captain Kirk.
5: Yes, absolutely. So
1: I, I want to create a little separation In those. So I feel like that's probably the the logical way to go. And I have to tell you and tell our audience, we are still struggling with the idea of doing a strict um, chronological overlap Hmm. of TNG, DS9, Voyager, or do series by series.
5: Hmm.
1: So, and there are very good arguments to be made on either side of doing that.
5: Yeah, because they interact back and forth.
1: They do. They do. But then you have to ask yourself, well, when the writers wrote that interaction, was it more of just a clever nod to the audience who was watching them at that time, or were they treating their stories as kind of self-contained units, Hmm. you know? So you, you can make the argument either way, you know, that if you don't interrupt Next gen, or you don't interrupt DS9. You get something out of watching those as a solid piece, and then you get to make the very clever reference back to <laughs> something else that happened. So we're we're still kind of struggling with it. Like I said, we we hear good and bad from either side, and uh, we've got a little while now before we have to make that decision. <laughs> but yeah. uh, we'll make it eventually, and uh, we hope that uh, that you're there to listen to it.
5: Absolutely.
1: We welcome now to our mission log TOS wrap up. Phil Plate, aka the Bad Astronomer. Uh, hello, Phil. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Can you hear me from the Astrometrics Lab? <laughs> yes, we can. I thought you just hung Excellent. out. I just thought you hung out at 10 Forward all the time.
9: Uh, well, you know what? You can't get real alcohol there. It's just that synthahol stuff. So oh yeah. I Have yes. to smuggle my own Romulan ale on. Good, good job. Okay, so have I established my geeky credentials here? Well, tonight?
1: I was about to ask you about your <laughs> geek cred because it, it, here's the thing. You know, uh, what we do is on our show, we try to have some people on who have worked on Star Trek, like Mike and Denise Akuda or uh, Bob Ursi or David Gerald or whomever. And we also like to have people who are doing other things in their professional life. But – they are huge Star Trek fans. And if I know one thing about you, I know that you are a huge Star Trek fan.
9: True. Guilty as charged, yeah.
1: So did you have one of those stories like we've heard a lot of people who go into their profession because they were influenced somehow by Star Trek?
9: You know, I I hear those stories all the time, uh, or vice versa, that people like Star Trek because of what it is they do. And I don't think it's that cut and dried, you know? I think Mm -hmm. there is a what we in the business call a nonlinear relationship. It's, it's not just one leads to the other, is that they feed into each other. And so n- not only that, I should say, but also there's just a predilection for both going into it. So when I was a kid, I was a big science dork and a big science fiction dork. So I watched Star Trek and Space 1999 and Lost in Space. And I could probably name a bunch of other shows people haven't heard of. You know, Quark. I was talking <laughs> to somebody about Quark the other day. Oh,
1: Richard Benjamin. Who could Richard forget? Richard Benjamin. That's yeah, right.
9: Yeah. The Galactic garbage collector. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow, that's pretty cool that you yeah. know that. Hey, written by Buck Henry. Yeah, you, you don't let uh, that yeah. pass oh, by. Well, yeah. 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 Um, and so, uh, you know, I did all that. Watched all the uh, Saturday morning black and white science fiction movies and all that stuff. And also could not get enough science reading books uh, documentaries all of that stuff and i think that they fed into each other and yeah <laughs> I, I can tell the story maybe a little later but i was surprised much later in life to learn that some people like star trek who weren't into the science and i thought who are these people <laughs> of course it's the science that makes people love star trek and it turns out i had a fairly narrow view of the show <laughs>
1: Well, okay. So tell us about that because I think that's something that Ken and I talk about very often. You know, the the, the mission of Mission Log is to talk about morals, meanings, and messages. And we look for the things that the writers intended, but we also look for the unintentional messages that maybe come through. And one of the things that – Ken, I I think you kind of bust my chops about this every now and then and rightfully so – is that I will say, hey, in the original series, we have all these instances where there is a mystery. There's an unknown known. And even if Star Trek is making up a science answer to it, they're still going for the science answer rather than just the, uh, uh, the the supernatural paranormal, like, oh, well, if it's if it's Red Jack, it means that he's, he's an evil spirit. No, if it's Red Jack, it means that it's an alien entity that we can track down and or get rid of out of people to keep Scotty from killing innocent women anymore. Uh, so that's one of the things that I, I think I've picked up as an unintentional through line in Star Trek. I mean, would you say that that's kind of the thing that drove you to the the science of it? Or is it just, I really want to have a spaceship and a phaser when I grow up? Was that the science end of it that appealed to you?
9: Oh, yeah. They're just, they're going to other planets. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Not to. Not to bring down the level of the conversation, all that highfalutin moral stuff you're talking about was cool. <laughs> uh, but no, you know, they're on a spaceship, and they're going to other places, and that's awesome. Um, honestly, I mean, it really can be boiled down to that when I was younger. It, yeah. was, it really was just aliens and spaceships, and there is still an appeal to that. I'm still drawn to that. Um, I, I, right now, there's not a lot of that going on on television, and it's killing me. Uh, since, I think, Stargate Universe was canceled, there are a couple of other shows on that, that I, I kind of follow off and on, but I really miss you know Spaceships and Aliens, and, and uh, Star Trek really fed into that when I was a kid. Now, that's kind of a, a gateway drug, I suppose, because at that point, I was only interested in sort of the, the gee whiz fun story stuff, but as you get older and that stuff sinks in and you realize the morality plays in the episodes are really interesting – And as you point out, you know, it was the embodiment of Clark's law that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, You know, when you talk about the idea of what is a ghost, what is supernatural power, it's just science. Mm -hmm. You know, if people ask me that all the time, too, because uh, over the years, besides being a scientist, I'm something of a, um, a career skeptic, right? You investigating claims of things and finding out whether they're true or not. And I get people asking me, "Do you believe in the paranormal?" And I say, "Well, no, because you know something's either real or it is not. There is no in-between stage. And so if ghosts exist, then there's a reason for them. We can investigate them, and if you if you see one, then they're leaving evidence behind, whether it's visual, audio or whatever. Let's investigate it. And it turns out, you know for me, uh, the evidence is not compelling. But you know what is on the edge of science is stuff we don't have a lot of evidence for that we can speculate about. And hopefully, as we get better technology and better ways of examining the data, we learn about it. And I think that was a big lesson of Star Trek. You know, there were times when they would say, we don't know what's going on. Let's, let's take a look. And that was always uh, uh, one of the more, I hate to use the word thrilling, but that, is, that was one of the more exciting aspects of the show for me.
4: So then, as an adult, having steeped yourself so in science, what is it about Star Trek that still appeals? I mean, is there... Do you have to suspend disbelief when you watch it? Or is it just the thrill of watching people go, hey, I don't know what that is. I'm going to go find out. I mean, because I would think that – you know how the sausage is made, right? <laughs> yeah, I would think that there might be a point where you'd say, you can't just teleport from one place to another. This is dumb. Or, you know, conversely, why didn't they just teleport from one place to another? Um, I mean, is there is there any part I – mean, what, what goes into, I mean, for somebody who can, you know, explain scientific theories that I can't even name, what goes into watching an episode of Star Trek at that
9: point? That is a really good uh, question. And, and the, the delineation you made there is an excellent one. Uh, uh, the first one is, you know, oh, you can't transport. Oh, you can't do warp drive. Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, look, it's a story right? Uh, you should really just relax, I believe, is the, uh, the <laughs> mantra from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's okay. I don't need everything to be completely 100% scientifically accurate. Um, if you're talking about going from planet to planet and meeting aliens that always seem to either look human or have grease paint on or little ridges on their noses or whatever, you know that's, that's the technology of the time. That's fine. You're telling a story and that's what's important. So if, if there's some MacGuffin, some gimme, some conceit, whatever term you want to use, where you kind of just have to shrug your shoulders and go, eh, all right, you know, eh, it's time travel, you know, all right, whatever. Um, that's cool, as long as the story is fun. On the other hand, the other point you made is, you know, why didn't they just teleport there it- you know, oh, Dr. Pulaski was regenerated from being old with her younger DNA. Now nobody ever has to age, Star Trek Next Generation. And, you know, they never, they just kind of drop that. And, and I think that's, that's where, when I'm, when I'm pulled out of the story, that's when I have the problem. When, when there are too many coincidences, when somebody has to act really dumb or out of character to make the plot go forward... Um, that's the kind of stuff that bugs me. So the misuse of science is, or, or is just a, a symptom of you know just basically sometimes lazy storytelling or uh, uh, not necessarily lazy storytelling. Sometimes there's not enough time. You know, there's we have to get this thing out out and in the can and to the network in the next three days. You know, get this done. That happens, and and even then, a lot of the times it's forgivable. Um, it, but that those are the times usually. When I kind of go, and it makes it much harder to watch the show.
1: I I think it's my own skeptical mind kind of uh, understanding what you're saying here, Phil, that for me at least, my understanding of how something is done has never diminished my appreciation of that thing. You know, um, understanding that... Star Trek is just a TV show or just a movie, and they are taking license with these concepts and they are um, you, you know maybe bending reality a little bit and just from a production side of things they they are just constructing this out of well styrofoam and chicken wire half the time, <laughs> um, very obviously so many times um, but uh, understanding the reality of what they 're doing uh, has never taken away from my ability to. Uh, either turn my brain off when I need to or turn my brain on when I need to uh, to get something out of a, out of a story um, it 's a lovely aspect isn 't it mm-hmm. uh, you
9: can you can ignore the stuff that bugs you and you can enjoy the stuff more when the stuff that 's dropped in is correct so um, pulling sort of a random example out when in next generation they had the Battle of Wolf three five nine and it's like, well, that's a real star. It's a red dwarf, and it's it's really close to Earth. So somebody looked that up. Somebody at some point in the writer's room or whatever said, we need a star nearby the Earth that we can use for this battle. Somebody went online, looked it up or whatever, and used it. Right. Um, and, and I love that. And that happens a lot in, uh, in, in movies and TV shows nowadays, uh, especially since uh, that information is easy to get. And also there are a lot of science advisors available. You know, Big Bang Theory has a science advisor, and uh, Defiance, uh, the movie Gravity, uh, has, they have science advisors. Uh, there's a group in L.A., uh, it's, it's actually headed out of, out of D.C., called uh, the Science and Entertainment Exchange, and this is a group of people who get scientists and writers uh, together for better science and a better portrayal of scientists in uh, movies, games, and in television. And I do a lot of work with them. I love it. I get called by writers who want you, know, they say, We need a spaceship that can do this. Does that make sense? And I'll say, Well, you need to tell me what the storyline is, and then I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. you know, we'll make the science fit. I don't want to get in the way of the story. And then they can drop in real science. And the people who know go, Oh, that was so awesome. And the people who don't, don't care. It's just something cool. And so it's, it's, an, it's always going to
1: trend towards the positive when you kind of know what's going on. So when it comes to Star Trek, and particularly the original series, you want a spaceship, you want a phaser. <laughs> but, but where does Star Trek get it right, and where does Star Trek get it wrong in that scientific approach?
9: What, are you kidding? How much time do we have?
1: Um, <laughs> well, you're, you're a highlights. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a top few. <laughs> I guess the 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 problems
9: i always had is when stuff was used inconsistently so you know we can't uh we can't go this we can't go any faster than this speed unless the plot calls for it right you know and then the kelvins come from andromeda and we can go warp 14 but then after that you can't and it's like what happened to that <laughs> that patch they put in the, in the in the warp drive that now we can't go that fast anymore uh for all i know that's what transwarp was based on but right um Things like that always bugged me. And, and the transporter... Uh, and and some of the philosophical questions about the transporter were never really investigated in the show, although they were in some of the novels. Like, you're dissolving somebody, turning them in energy, and then moving them to this other place and reintegrating them. Did you just kill them? <laughs> right, and and or, You know, are they dead, or did you just, like, suspend them for a second? <laughs> oh, Different explanations were given for the same effect. And there were some times when, you know... Was it Kirk or Spock who said this microphone will amplify things one to the fourth power? And they meant ten to the fourth power. Just things like that. You kind of go, yeah. uh." But then, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's cool. Um, In Star Trek The Next Generation, at least, Warp Drive was kind of explained. And it it actually, eh, you know, not so bad. Kind of makes sense. Kind of works. Things like that I I found um, were good. The idea of, um, you know, dividing the galaxy up into quadrants, um, that that's okay. I, you know, I can mm-hmm. I can do that. But then they, you know, I used to always wonder how they navigate. And then finally in generations in the movie, they show the astrometrics lab, and that was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. I, I Just the everyday kind of stuff um, on Star Trek. Uh, the science that was used, and, you know, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this a billion times. When you look at things like, a voice activated computer, the idea of computer intelligence, the little Macintosh floppy drives <laughs> they used to have the discs you know, all flip phones, all that stuff. Uh, that was great. And back then it was amazing. You know, even the idea of a of walking up to a door and having it open for you was astonishing. And now You know, if you walk into a grocery store or, you know, a convenience store and the door doesn't open, you're like, oh, God, (laughs) gross. Really? We went 30 years from astonishing to this thing sucks. Right. Right. That's what Star Trek has done for us.
4: Yeah, my wife uh, pushed a shopping cart into a door that's supposed to open the other day because it didn't. And she Mm -hmm. just doesn't even look at it, you know, because it's just going to open. I mean, the assumption is that that... That thing will happen. I have to. I have to. If, if you're if you if you're okay with it, I will share my one like hard science thing from Star Trek that still mystifies me every time it happens, or, okay. or the, every time I think about it. What was the um, What was the episode again with the space hippies? I, I'm terrible. I apologize. The, the Way to Eden. Yeah, in The Way to yeah. Eden, uh, Chekhov actually explains yeah, to uh, one of the <laughs> hippies yeah. how reach. how we go about finding planets. You know, it's like yeah, we think there's going to be a planet here. I think there's going to be a star here, and if and so we we plot where we think it's going to be, and then if it's not exactly where we think it's going to be, then something else is affecting its gravity, and so we think there might be another body there. And I and and when he explained that, I paused it because I was like, holy cow! He just <laughs> explained how we do that,
1: right? Which which that generally speaking, episode?
4: yeah. Which generally speaking, they don't. Generally speaking, they're like, oh yeah, well we'll just we'll just chart it. Well how? Well we have a chart. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but, no, but Chekhov enough. actually explains that they're looking for changes in the uh, how gravity would affect a body in space, and they're basically looking for that change, and that's where they can assume the planet would be.
4: That's how they're finding nice. Eden, because Eden is supposed to be this thing that doesn't exist. I mean, they actually, it's its kind of silly, but they do the same thing in one of the Star Wars movies. I can't remember which yeah, one. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, um, it, the idea is the thing's not there. Well, something's affecting it, so there must be something there. And it was it's, it's honestly one of the only actual scientific principles I remember being explained in, in the original series anyway, as opposed mm-hmm. to just, oh, well, no, it's science
9: right yeah. uh, we're gonna warp around the star and go back in time exactly. right.
4: how <laughs> science um,
9: yeah exactly
1: that uh, totally works. The, actually
9: the best treatment of that ever 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 was in the movie inner space when um uh, uh, uh dennis quaid is inside of martin short and is gonna make him make his face change
8: mm-hmm. and
9: he's, he's got all these diagrams and books open and he's he's gonna he's, you, you know he's gonna manipulate the nerves and the muscles and whatever in his little shrunken a uh, fantastic voyage ship inside of Martin Short, and Martin Short says, "How you know? How are you going to do this?" And they just cut to Quaid, and he's looking at all this, all this gear, and all this stuff, and he goes, "It's complicated." <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to like stand up and cheer in the, in the movie theater when I saw that. <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's how you explain something that you can't explain.
1: And and um, oddly enough, he turns Martin Short into Bob Picardo. So there's your Star Ricardo, Trek yeah. connection. Yeah, there you go. Um,
9: and in fact, I met Robert Picardo at a science fiction convention years ago, and I just happened to bump into him, and I said, you know, most of the people here are going to you know, fawn all over you for, for you know, Voyager and all that, but me, you'll always be the cowboy to me. And he laughed and and pulled out a picture of him as the cowboy from interspace and signed it for me. and That was
1: awesome. Wow. He's
5: such a nice guy.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a really interesting piece of trivia that he just walks around with a picture of himself as the cowboy from interspace. So ladies and gentlemen, if you find Bob Picardo. He was at a convention. (laughs) He did say.
4: (laughs) But, you know, props to him for being that prepared.
9: In fact, he was walking to the the table where he was signing pictures and things. So it's not as odd as you might expect. (laughs) All
8: right. Um, hey, and that's
9: where I met Chase Masterson, too. And she turned out to be a real sweetie pie. She um, absolutely is. Yeah. That was, uh, that was quite the. That was like my first big science fiction convention in a long time. It was the LA Worldcon. And um, I think it was LA. Might have been. I don't remember. But it was a long time ago.
1: <laughs> now, were you attending? And I wound
9: up eating a lot of the folks from Star Trek, and it was really, really cool.
1: Were you attending as a fan, or were you attending as a, a guest?
9: Both. And okay. that has always been the case ever since. When I go to Comic Con or Dragon Con, uh, or Or other things I you know it 's like I get invited or whatever, and I might do a science talk or panels. I love doing panels and that sort of thing, uh, but I wind up you know geeking out uh, all the time and meeting uh, writers, especially writers, uh, but also you know some of the some of the stars and that 's always so much fun' um, it 's it's, it's rare to be disappointed by these folks. Usually, what happens is I wind up saying something incredibly stupid and making a fool of myself. Uh, usually they're very lovely, about it. <laughs> but anyway, I think we got a little off track there. Um,
1: okay. I, I, I want to go back about to
9: gravitationally influencing other objects and being able to see something that might otherwise have been hidden. I would have to see that episode again to see exactly how Chekhov explains it. Um, in principle, sure. Um, in, in fact, uh, the way we first started finding planets around other stars was because as a planet orbits the star and makes a big circle around the star, the star makes a little circle around the planet. It's kind of like if you have a big person and a little person and they hold hands and swing each other around, the little person will make a big circle and the big person will make a little circle. And you can detect that. Uh, Not the actual motion, but um, as the planet orbits the star and the star makes that little circle, for part of its orbit it's heading away from you and part of it it's heading toward you and that uh, red and blue shifts the light a little bit. And it's not much. It's a very tiny effect. But you can measure it. And that's how the first planets were detected. Um, whether you try to hide a star you know you re- erase it from the books like I think is what they did with Eden and, and they did in the Star Wars movie and then you would look at the other stars and say this motion doesn't make sense because there should be a star right here but we don't see it. Um, maybe uh, that would be really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about, you know, 22nd century technology. So why not?
1: Well, uh, all I'm saying, Phil, is that if you want a little uh, a little something to fire your scientific mind, but you also love space hippies who sing, then I've got an episode for you. <laughs> so- Turns out,
9: you know, not so much. But, <laughs> hey, if great white captain says to do that. gotta all right. do
3: that
1: All right. Um, I, I want to return to a, a scientific topic that you uh, brought up a moment ago because, uh, Ken, I'm surprised that you didn't jump all over this. The idea of the transporter actually – in one theory, it breaks down your matter and puts your matter some other place. In another approach, it destroys the matter that is you and then rebuilds other matter to turn you into you. Right. Um it's, it's the second one, by the way. It, it, for sure, it's the <laughs> second one. We're absolutely sure it's the second one.
4: It seems to be.
1: Okay. So, and uh, anybody have any problem with the Ken, Phil, either of you? I mean, is this a, uh, a moral quandary here, or an ethical problem? That we're actually killing the first being and then creating a copy of that being elsewhere. I mean, Ken, you being a big fan of putting your mind into robots, I, I assume this really has no problem for you yeah, yeah the only problem is making sure that it can actually reconstruct it on the
4: other side i mean we all remember what happened in star trek the motion picture which we haven't seen yet on this show but we all remember what happened we or or what happened in galaxy quest
1: yeah yeah very true <laughs> right
4: yeah these are both scary scary possibilities but you know so is getting in the car if you take it down to that level
9: right yeah sure but, yeah It's just a matter of risk right i um I, I, there there are several problems I have with this. One is the obvious one, and that is if you if you're literally converting that matter to energy, um, and and I'm not exactly sure what that means. Uh, you, you can there are ways of converting matter to energy, uh, but you know it would just be converted into into gamma rays. It's not like you're converting uh, a bucket of ice into a bucket of water by letting it melt, and it's just it's sort of the same thing. You're you're fundamentally sort of erasing all of that matter. And you have to, when you, when you convert it to energy, now you've just got a big old pile of gamma rays. And it, it's, it's a big pile. <laughs> it's a lot of energy. And right. uh, you know, if you converted a human being into energy, you convert you know, E equals MC squared. Do that math. You find out that you're talking about uh, way more than a nuclear weapon's worth of energy. Um, so you've got to store that someplace. Um, and, and really what's happening is you're, you're scrambling that matter. There's no memory of that matter once you convert it to energy. Uh, so how do you recompile it at its destination? Well, maybe what they're doing is they are mathematically analyzing you. You can, you can literally write down a series of equations which describes the uh, motion of an electron, for example, or a hydrogen atom. And you could do that for two hydrogen atoms and three and four. It gets complicated really fast. If you're doing it for the gazillion atoms in a human body, I, I'm not sure that's even possible. I imagine if the whole universe were a computer, you still couldn't do it. But let's say you could, then maybe, yeah, you could take that energy and then just convert it into matter back where you go. So I mean, theoretically, sure, it's, 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 it's an engineering problem, not a, not a physical one. But you know, what happens to that person? Have you killed them? And there's this old maxim that um, a difference that makes no difference is no difference. So if you, if you took uh, you know Ensign Redshirt and, and beamed him or her to a planet and you're literally killing this person and then reassembling them with all the memories and all the physical characteristics intact, that person is going to think, and to all intents and purposes it is, except to the original, who's now dead, gone uh, that person is, is dead. So, you know, I, I, think in that sense, yeah, it makes a difference. I don't want to go get transported.
1: Well, I, I have two things to say to that. First of all, uh, that's a lot of effort and energy to go through to put instant red shirt on a planet where instant red shirt is about to get killed anyway.
9: <laughs> so, slaughter when they step on board the
1: enterprise. Yeah, really. I mean, that, that's a lot. And, and Ken, for you, I mean, based on what Phil is saying, Basically, you could be summed up by a series of ones and zeros anyway. So moving your mind into a robot body or a, a supercomputer, I, it, maybe it just sounds more appealing now. I don't know.
9: No. Well, it actually turns out it's still even harder than that because of um, uncertainty and basically quantum fuzz and all this, all this quantum mechanical stuff. But, you know, you got the Heisenberg compensator, so you're okay.
1: Mm. Uh, quantum fuzz was my uh, band. It was a, a tribute to Foghat uh they were great um was that like a paul and storm joke i just heard there <laughs> cover band like, or are you being serious cover or? band no no that, that was a uh, cover okay. band it's joke it's a cover yeah. band joke okay
9: yeah well yeah. for a second i believed you because we actually had a drink we had called quantum foam
1: it was a coffee drink oh nice nice uh, we, we should try to bring that back <laughs> why well, right. we i think uh,
4: we need to have you back uh you know once we get into uh next
1: tng year, yeah for sure
9: i'd love that i uh, um I was kind of raised on the original Star Trek. My older brother was a huge fan and had me watching it. Um, and then TNG came out um, literally my first semester of grad school. And that's when uh, you know, Encounter at Farpoint came out. And then uh, the last episode uh, came out right before I defended my PhD. So it kind of, th- that whole show sort of bookended my entire grad school career and um as an so i watched those as an adult and that became sort of it it, oddly enough became my star trek and that was it was an odd feeling just like what's you know i I still like kirk and spock and i'm still kind of a kirk and spock guy but this is sort of my my star trek now it's kind of like doctor who where you know david tennant replaced tom baker in my heart and i thought wow that's a weird feeling (laughs) Uh, yeah but yeah, But yeah, and, and that also relied on science a lot more, TNG, so it also appeals to me.
1: Let me ask you, since you were raised on TOS, though, uh, you said your older brother showed that to you, what what are the standout things from that show? Either favorite, I mean, I hate to ask, what's your favorite episode? But I'm going to ask, what are your favorite episodes or or favorite moments, the things from the original series that left that indelible print on your mind?
9: Um, You know, it's funny, when I was a, again when I was a kid I watched it for a different reason mm-hmm. than I did much later and the episodes I really liked were ones that had weird scientific stuff going on like uh, the Folian web um, I really liked that one because the aliens were so strange uh, the idea of this energy net and alternate dimensions uh, the ones with the creepy aliens uh, but then as I got older and watched it again and I would watch something like uh, City on the Edge of Forever, or uh, A Mock Time—all of those uh, plot, character-driven episodes. It was the moments between the characters uh, where uh, they recognized each other's strengths and weaknesses that uh, really appealed to me. Now, especially as, as someone who writes all the time, now I don't write fiction, but you know, when you're writing about a star that's exploding or something like that, it's still a story that you're you're weaving. And, and laying out in front of people and asking them to examine it. So seeing that in the old show makes it, to me, stand out above a lot of shows that are even out now, where uh, action and you know, just stuff going on is replacing the actual three-dimensional characters that, that I want to see as, a, you know, as a, an informed viewer. And I, I miss that sometimes.